If there's more joy in heaven amongst God's angels over the salvation of one soul, can you imagine the explosion of joy as millions of people are coming into the kingdom? Welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily Bible study with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Teaching Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we have spent this week in chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. This passage addresses a multitude of people who will come to faith during the time of the tribulation following the rapture of the church. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy explains that those who do come to faith during the tribulation will be individuals who previously never heard and understood the gospel message. But those who did hear and chose to put off a decision will be unable to accept God's free gift of salvation. Now think about this. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. A few days later, 5,000 men, excluding the women and children and their families, were saved. Probably 15 to 20,000 people on that day. And as powerful and as magnificent as that expression of power was in that day, it doesn't even begin to compare to the number that is going to be saved during this time frame. Multitude of millions of people across the planet. Now, you might be listening today and thinking, you're listening, live streaming, maybe sitting here or in one of our campuses, and you say, well, that's good news because I haven't received Jesus yet. At least I'll know if this rapture happens like you say, Pastor. I'll have time to get my heart right and receive Jesus then. No, you won't. Hold your finger here. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You're in the book of Revelation. Go to the left. If you find any book in the Bible that begins with the letter T, you're in the section. All the T books in the Bible are in the New Testament. They go from long to short. That's how you remember the order. The word Thessalonians is shorter, longer than Timothy, longer than Titus. So you have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, followed by Titus. And they come right after Gary eats popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So I had a guy in my Bible study. His name was Gary. He said, this is how I, I told him the great electric power company. He said, no, it's Gary. It's popcorn. Okay. So you got Gary, it's popcorn. The T books in the Bible. There's nine books in the New Testament right there. You'll learn that in the discovery class if you've been there. Right, Matt? Do we still teach him that? Yeah. He's shaking his head. Yeah. Amen. I think he, I think he means that. Anyway, Second um, Thessalonians 2. And look, if you will, um, he is describing the coming of the Antichrist in verse 10. And he says that when the Antichrist is called the lawless one, when he comes, his son of perdition, he will come with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Now, you read a verse like that, and you might ask, how can God delude a person? Does that not seem unfair? Well, first of all, it is very clear that those who are deluded are those who had an opportunity to respond to the gospel of grace, but they did not respond. Verse 11 begins with the words, and for this reason, looking back at verse 10, to those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So behind the great delusion is a great refusal. It's identical to what Jesus taught in John 3.19, where he instructs us that people will refuse him 
because of their great love for sin. Verse 12 plainly says, notice, they took pleasure in wickedness. So the Bible is clear. What the King James calls a strong delusion is going to be sent on those who would not believe because they love sin more than they love the Lord. And you will meet people like that today. They'll, you talk to them about God and they're not interested. Why? Because they love sin more than they love the light. And so with that said, the Bible is very clear that while people get saved during the tribulation, let Scripture interpret Scripture, people who have heard the gospel prior to the rapture of the church will not be part of this great multitude that give their lives to Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear over that. And so I know there's some popular novels of this guy who's living with his wife and she's a believer and all of a sudden she's gone, she's been raptured, woo! I guess she was right and he gives his life to Christ and he gets saved. That's not true. No, 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 no. God is very clear. Once these events happen, the church is taken out. We saw in the opening chapter, it happens very fast. God just begins with the signing of this firm covenant, this seven-year period. And we don't know if it's days, weeks, or months after the church is raptured, but it's very quick. And God is warning us that people, verse 12, in order that they all may be judged, condemned, damned, who did not believe the truth. Why? Because they took pleasure in righteousness. If you are listening to me somewhere over the radio, television, on the internet, and you are not a believer, it is very foolish to play Russian roulette with your soul, thinking that you're going to become one after the church is removed. And if you die lost, you will pay the penalty of what chapter 1 and verse 9 calls the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. This is a very grimly logical passage if you study it carefully. First, they took pleasure in wickedness. That is, they make a deliberate choice. Second, they refuse to receive the love of the truth. Third, the activity of the evil one steps in who deceives them based on choices they have made. And fourth, God sends on them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false. Believe a lie. And finally, they're judged for all of eternity. It's a slippery path that begins with a love for evil. And that leads to a rejection of the truth. So you witness to a guy who says, well, I don't think there's a heaven or I don't think there's a hell. Who are you sleeping with, pal? What drugs are you taking? Where are you getting high on? There's always behind it a love for sin. I can tell you there's always a moral issue behind it. That leads to a rejection of the truth. That leads to deception by the devil, which leads to a judicial hardening from God. And that happens today. Jesus said to the Jews in his day, look, while the light is among you, walk amongst the light that, and believe in the light that you might become sons of light. And because they refused, Jesus said they could not believe. But in a wide-scale, wholesale way, it's going to happen during this seven-year period, and it will result in sealing one's condemnation. So beyond the number of the multitude, let's also think about the nature of this multitude. 
When we think about the nature of this vast multitude, John highlights three simple facts concerning their origin, their arraignment, their clothing, and their praise. Look at the origin. I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues. Now, the Bible is clear that one of the great functions of the tribulation period is to bring both Jew and Gentile to Christ. Jeremiah said in the 30th chapter, for that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, one of the terms used to describe this seven-year period. But he, Israel, shall be saved out of it. Zechariah the prophet said, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they've pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So we learn that these 144,000 Jews are saved. That's a fulfillment of prophecy in and of itself. And they're going to preach the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike. And the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. What we're trying to do today, through so many means, it is going to be completed in this day. Every single language group in the world is going to hear. You say, how? Through 144,000 Jews? Yes, that's what the text says. Are they going to know multiplicity of languages? No doubt it would be like the gift of tongues in the first century. And God will give them the ability to speak all kinds of languages. I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation. That's not Jewish people. All tribes, peoples, and tongues. Nations, that's the word ethnos. We get our word ethnicity from it. He's speaking about the various cultural traditions of the world. Tribes. It refers to various family lines or clans. Peoples. That's a word used in the Bible to refer to various races, languages, glossolalia. He's speaking of languages, language groups within the various races of the world. A great multitude that no one can count. And so the gospel will be preached worldwide without respect to any people group and people from every walk of life, every language group, every race will be saved. Now, I have no doubt that until Jesus comes back, churches will continue to have their prejudices based on the color of skin, based on educational levels, Based on financial levels, I find it interesting that all the seeker-sensitive churches, they target an audience, and it's usually upper-class, middle, white people. You know, years ago, I invited a man to this church. He said, no, I, won't. I wouldn't go to that church. I said, have you ever been? Well, you didn't like the way I preach? Oh, no, 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 no. What's the problem? Too diverse. Now, he didn't use those words. He used some other words. I said, you know something, friend? You wouldn't like being in heaven. What do you mean? I said, 83% of the people on planet Earth are not white and Caucasian. In heaven are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue standing before the throne. Look at their arraignment, clothed in white robes. White robes, picture not what the Ku Klux Klan wants it to picture as they pull verses out of context from the Revelation to teach their wicked ways. No, these white robes are a picture of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is gifted to us by grace to use Isaiah's words, though your sins be like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. 
And notice their praise. And palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to the God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Please note, these are tribulation saints. And when they arrive, they don't arrive defeated and weary and worn out, but they arrive there victorious. These are people who, for the most part, as we're going to see, have had their heads cut off. But they are waving branches, remember, when Jesus came in on this your day, Israel, the day spoken of by the prophet Daniel, we call it Palm Sunday, a day prophesied hundreds of years before by the prophet Daniel, where Jesus walks in and the multitudes are raising palm branches to, to their king. And they say from Psalm 118, a great messianic son, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. But most of the folks in that crowd were pretty fickle. Within a few days, they went from hail him to nail him. But not this group, not this group in heaven. This multitude, millions, are giving praise to the Lamb and with a cry, with a loud voice, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to his Lamb. These people are saved out of their sin and they're praising the Lord not because they've been delivered out of the tribulation. They're praising him because they've been saved by the blood of Christ and they are doing what saved people do. They are worshiping the Lord and they also affirm God's sovereignty, salvation to our God who sits on the throne. Notice there's no debating about this. There's no question about this. God and God alone is sitting on the throne in heaven. He is sovereign. They recognize that in spite of all that is happening on the earth, He is on His throne. That God and God alone is fit to take the universe's throne. And they're extending to Him praise and adoration and glory. And listen to me, friend. If your heart never gets excited about giving praise to the Lord, it means A, you've never either been saved by the blood of Christ or B, your heart is so calloused and indifferent, you can't wait to get out of here and wondering why I'm preaching so long. Listen, when you're born again and you're walking with God, this is the Lord's day all day long. And you're excited about what God wants to do in our midst. Now listen, I don't care how you worship I don't care if you get excited, but just don't tip your cup over. Now, if it overflows, great, but don't tip it over. But I've told you many times, I would much rather cool down a zealot than warm up a corpse. And it's okay to say amen occasionally. If you want to raise your hands and say praise the Lord, that's all right too. Look at verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. We studied them. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Millions and millions of angels were standing around the throne of God. Listen, if Jesus said, if there's more joy in heaven amongst God's angels over the salvation of one soul, can you imagine the explosion of joy as millions of people are coming into the kingdom? And together these three groups fall on their faces and they worship God. We're told in verse 12, they're saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Heaven's occupants cannot help but give God glory. They give him blessing. They acknowledge he is worthy of blessing. 
Eulogia is a Greek word. We got our word eulogy. We usually eulogize dead persons. We speak something well of a dead person. They're speaking here of someone who's alive. They're eulogizing the triune God. They give him glory, doxa. We get our word doxology from it. They're giving God all the glory. There's no human peacocks in heaven. They recognize they are there by the sheer grace and mercy of God Almighty. They are giving him, ascribing to him wisdom, Sophia, because as Paul says, our salvation expresses the wisdom of God. They're giving thanksgiving, Eucharisteo. We got our word Eucharist around the Lord's table. We thank him for what he has done. They're thanking God for all he's done. They're giving him honor because his name in our day is dishonored and blasphemed and ridiculed and mocked, but in this day it will receive honor and dunamis, power, because he is a great and all-powerful God and might, which refers to his strength. And this is the only time in all of the Bible where doxology is written, where it begins with amen and it ends with amen, and it simply means this is the truth, so don't miss it. Now, that's the description of the multitude. I'm almost done. You're wondering. All right. Secondly, there's the deliverance of the multitude. And in describing the deliverance, he highlights two truths. First, they come out of the great tribulation. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? One of the 24 elders is quoted in this verse is asking a question. First, who are they? And second, where do they come from? Now, he's asking this question not because he doesn't know. This dialogue format, by the way, is used periodically in Scripture when God gives a vision or a prophecy in order to teach a question. A question is asked, and then very often the person who asks the question then answers the question. So John steps up, verse 14, I said to him, my Lord, or we might say in this house, sir, you know, it's as if John kind of lifted up his hands and says, I don't know, but I know that you know. He has no doubt that this man knew. And again, it's very clear that these elders are a distinct group of people. These are not tribulation saints because the people he's describing are coming out of the tribulation. The elders are already there in chapter 4, the 24 elders, because the church has been caught up. These are not angels. This is a specific group. He said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So if the elders represent the church, then the multitude here must represent a different body of saints. Literally, the Greek text reads, these are the ones who come out of the tribulation, the great one. The article, not present in some of your Bibles, but here in the New American Standard, the great tribulation. It's in every Greek manuscript. They come out of the great tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And they keep coming. It's the tents where they're, it's like a stadium door where they just keep pouring in. The 144,000 are preaching. People are getting saved. People are getting beheaded. And they just keep on coming into the presence of God, saved one after the other, after the other, after the other. And so they come out of the tribulation. Notice too, they come to heaven by the blood of Christ. They come to heaven by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are told they washed their robes and made them white how? In the blood of the Lamb. Now, when we think of putting blood on a white shirt like mine, and yesterday I shaved and I put my white shirt on and I got blood all over the collar and so it was dirty and I had to put another one on to go perform a wedding. 
we think of blood making something dirty. Not in the mind of a Jew. In the mind of a Hebrew, blood is used for cleansing. If you remember the book of Hebrews chapter 9, it says all things are cleansed by blood. And so blood is represented of cleansing and it's represented of life. And so there at the Passover, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Israel. And so Old and New Testaments teach that life represents purity, cleansing, and it represents life because the life is in the blood and therefore without the shedding of blood, there is absolutely no forgiveness. And so in Romans 5, it says we're justified, we're saved by his blood, and for that reason we'll be saved from the wrath to come. In Ephesians 1, it says we have redemption through his blood. In Colossians 1, it says that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. In the opening verses of Revelation, John said to him who loves us and released us from our sins, how? By his blood. And so while it is offensive to many mainline churches, preachers like me who preach the blood of Christ, it's not offensive to the person who's been saved by the blood of Christ. These are people who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We sing it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And here it is the blood of the substitutionary death of the Lamb of God who provides that way. That brings us finally to the destiny of the multitude beyond the description and the deliverance out of the tribulation by the blood of Christ, he tells us about the final destiny of this multitude. And he highlights two truths. First, they serve God continually. They serve him continually. By the way, here they are in heaven. They're in their intermediate bodies, like Moses and Elijah. They hadn't received their resurrection bodies when they were there on the Mount of Transfiguration, but they have some intermediate recognizable body, which you will get if you were to die this afternoon and go to heaven. But your resurrection body is still uh, going to happen at the rapture of the church and for Old Testament saints at the end of the tribulation. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. No soul sleep here. No purgatory here. These people are very much alive. And so we are told for this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They're before the throne of God. They're in a place of prominence and honor. We have already highlighted that when you go to heaven, you're not sitting on some fluffy white cloud wearing a woolly robe with a, you know, a rusty halo. You're very much alive and you are serving the Lord day and night and he spreads his tabernacle over you, idiomatic from the book of Leviticus, that the Lord will dwell among his people and in addition, they are satisfied eternally forever. Verse 16 says, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. On the earth, these tribulation saints were not safe anywhere. They starve, they die by disease because of the judgments that are coming upon the earth because they refuse to take the mark of the antichrist they cannot buy or sell anything and like rabid animals they are hunted down and slaughtered but here they are free revelation 13 will say they won't be hungry there they won't be hurt thirsty there 
They won't be beaten up by the sun and the thirst that had parched their throats during these years that we will study. No, there will be no hunger, no thirst. They're taking, he's taking this from Isaiah 49. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or the sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and guide them to the springs of water. And that would have been so comforting to these first century saints who are reading it. And it is so comforting to the saints of God. Persecution broke out this week again in India. Hindu people attacking believers and slaughtering them once again. What a comfort verses like this are, that earth is not our home, that this is a place of temporary reprise for the lamb, verse 17, and the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the waters of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. God's people will have comfort and care from the Savior himself who will wipe every tear from their eyes. Will that be you? Listen, if you're a member of the body of Christ, if you've been born again, then you've been studying with me your future. We are looking at the 24 elders, representative of the raptured church, and what they are witnessing. And if you are born again, you are witnessing what you are going to be doing with the tribulation saints and the angels and the four living creatures around the throne of God. This is you this morning. But if you're not born again, and the rapture of the church were to happen today, you've been in a church where you've heard the gospel with clarity and with power and pungency, and it will be forever too late for you. You will not get saved. The Bible is clear. You say, well, I think I'd go to heaven. I'd hope I'd go to heaven. I'm pretty sure I'd go to heaven. My friend, if you don't know, you're not going according to the scripture. And if you don't believe that, come to meet the pastor tonight and I'll document it for you from the word of God. You need to know that you know that you know. And many people say, I'm 50% sure or 70 or whatever it is. Because in their back of their mind, they don't think they're good enough. Well, none of us are. We all fall short. But if you will come to Jesus and believe the gospel that is defined as the death, burial, and the resurrection, the power of God to save you, he will forgive you. He will give you the gift of eternal life. He will come inside of you and change you from the inside out and make you a new creature. But he will never force himself on you. You must choose whether you will come through the way, the truth, and the life, or whether you will devise your own plan of salvation that will land you in hell forever and ever and ever. You say, well, I'll get saved in this great number after the rapture. No, I documented for you this morning. That won't happen. Today is the day to be saved. Tomorrow may be forever too late. Let's stand for prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for your word a lamp to our feet and our light to our path. I pray today for someone who is here, who's listening, who's never received Jesus. They've never trusted the sufficiency of his death on the cross. Help them this day to call upon you for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, you promised will be saved. Help them to say, Lord Jesus, save even me. But Father, for those of us who have met you in salvation, 
Help us to see what you are doing in the world, what you are allowing to happen, the very things that you wrote concerning Israel and Jerusalem. May our eyes be wide open. May we, like never before, be faithful stewards of the gospel that you've entrusted to us. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. To listen again to today's message, The Mysterious Multitude, from Revelation 7, verses 9 to 17, use the Search the Scriptures app or go to our website, searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV20. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll observe a moment of silence as we move into Revelation 8 and search the Scriptures.